Welcome to the St. Thomas More Lynchburg's Homily Podcast. We join Monsignor Michael McCarran as he brings his insight and application to the readings for the second Sunday of Lent. All right, time for a scripture quiz. What is odd about the readings today? And I would suggest particularly about the readings number one and number three, Gospel reading and the first reading, in case you didn't remember the first reading because you were so taken up in the gospel reading, first reading is about the sacrifice of Isaac, okay? And uh, the second reading, of course, is Romans 8, that magnificent chapter that we all should memorize, but particularly about the first reading and the second reading. What is odd? It kind of stands out peculiar. What is it? There are no right or wrong answers. Well, there are wrong answers, yes, but I won't note them. Brian, what's, wrong, what's odd about them? You don't have to know. If you just say, I don't, I don't catch it, that's fine. Oh, I like that. To give up everything and listen? Excellent. Yes, and that, that itself would be a striking thing. You're, you're correct. But I'm going after an oddity, a quirk, that I find, uh, even when I've proclaimed this, it always struck me as odd. I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you the first reading first, and you can see if, see if you agree with me. And if you don't, talk to me afterwards, and we'll, <laughs> we'll convince you. The first reading... Uh, now, we're, listening, we're, we're talking about Abraham has been told to sacrifice his son Isaac, right? And do you notice that there's no, he doesn't, he doesn't say, why? Let me talk you out of it. Remember, this is the same Abraham that talked to God from destroying all of Sodom, one after the other. If there's one good person there, will you save the city? If there's 10 good people there. We're talking about the primary bargainer of the Old Testament. Not afraid at all to tell God, well, let's talk about this. He, I mean, he's a real rug trader. And he, and he uses his skills throughout his story until this point. He doesn't ask a single question. I find that odd. I find it odd that he just gathers his son, who's probably in this story about 2021, gathers his son, and off he goes, his son carrying the very means of his own destruction, and doesn't say a word. And then, and then the third reading, Jesus is transfigured before them, and he tells them, as he often does in the Gospel of Mark, it's called the Messianic Secret to the Scripture scholars, not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. All right? I find it odd, quirky, that they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead could possibly mean. Could possibly mean? You just saw it, you idiots. I mean, there's the resurrected Lord shining in all of glory. You knew it. It knocked you on your knees. You bowed down. We're ready to build three carnival booths. And then you come down and say, I wonder what that rising from the dead has anything to do with that. 
I mean, I could understand our Lord going, jeez, you're so thick. I showed you. Because, of course, in Matthew, the context is that Jesus has just revealed himself to Peter. Who do people say that I am? No, he's a prophet. He's one of the people who have lineage. And then Peter speaks in faith and says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And and Jesus goes all over and kisses and hugs. Wonderful. It's not you who speak. It's my father who speaks through you. Good job, Peter. And then he jumps up again after Jesus explains that all this means that he must suffer and die and rise. Peter jumps in and says, oh, God forbid, Lord, that should ever happen to you. And he rips his face off and hands it to him on a platter. You're thinking like human beings do, Peter. You're not thinking, now you're not thinking like my father. You're thinking like humans would think. You're not listening to him. Behind me. Well, it says in Matthew that after that, they they didn't say anything to him. All these 12 brusque, burly men prone to chatter, fighting, fussing, quarreling, loving. And not a word for two chapters. Not a word. So by the time they get to Tabor on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus, I can hear him saying to his father, I may have been a little harsh. I may have have upset them and hurt their feelings. After all, how could they know what I was talking about? I'm, I'm the one who's teaching them. And so he says, come, come on, Peter, James, John, come up with me. And on the top of the mountain, and we've been there, it's a real mountain. You know, I've been there many times, some of us here have been there. And it's, it's, a, it's the mountain over which you look, the plain of Armageddon, the plain where the battle between good and evil will be fought, the last battle. And so Jesus is there doing this in sight of that Sight of the last battle between good and evil. And he goes, watch this. Boom. And suddenly in his humanity, his full humanity, his full divinity is revealed. And the actual Shekinah of the Trinity, the Shekinah of God, the glory that emanates from pure love is made manifest. That's the resurrection. He's giving them a moment. Take a look at this. Look. Because there's going to come a time when you won't be able to see this. All you'll see is blood and gore. All you'll see is torture. All you'll see is failure. But look at this and hold on to what you see and it will get you through that time to the victory of the thing you're going to be lost in. You see, a transfiguration moment is that moment that we cling to to get us through. Abraham, why didn't he bargain? Well, I, don't, I can't say, not being in his mind, but I have an idea. Abraham was at the covenant ceremony where God passes through his sacrifice like a flaming torch, and he comes to Abraham and says, I will make your descendants more numerous than the sands of the seashore or the stars of the sky. And see, when he brought Isaac, he wasn't just bringing his sweet son. He was bringing his future. For a Jewish mind, all of your posterity is caught up in the children that come from your sons. And he was his son. 
And so what he was slaughtering was any hope of him living forever, any hope of him having any kind of descendants at all. And I suspect all along the way he knew, you're not going to do this. There's something else going on here. He couldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't go back on his word like that. I suspect even as he was raising the knife, he said, it's not going to happen. And it didn't. Because he had faith, not in that promise, but in the original promise. He had a transfiguration moment. These readings are odd. Even St. Paul is odd. All things work together for good, he said last week. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's quirky about that. How do you know when God is for you? How do you know? Well, my sisters and brothers, it would be quirky and odd, and all of that would be very good and good scripture scholarship, but the problem is it's also us. It is us. I mean, we're in the same position, you know, exactly the same thing. I mean, I used this example the last three masses, but it's a good example. You're a brand new daddy. Your wife has had nine months to have a relationship with this child she's carried in her womb. Now you had a part in that to play, but you have to stand on the outside kind of looking in until the day of that birth. And then at that birth, you're standing there in the hospital room or your home, wherever the baby was born, and you're holding that little girl or that little boy. And you know, from that moment on, you're different. You will never, ever, ever again not be a father. You know at that moment, when you look at that red little face, kind of squirming in your arms, you know that you would give your life to save that little one. You know that nothing would prevent you from risking your life or giving your life to save theirs. You know it, and you feel it, and it changes you enough to get up in the middle of the night and grumble but feed. Flash ahead, 17 years. It's 3 o'clock in the morning again, but you're not feeding them. You're waiting for them. It's 3 o'clock in the morning, and finally you hear a bunch of laughing teenagers pull up out of the front door. He gets out, falls flat on his face in the lawn, comes to the door, tries to get his key in, but you don't let him. You just open the door, and you just sit there and glare at, stand there and glare at him. And you look at him, and he's not having any of it. No apology. Get out of my way. I'm going to bed. What are you all waiting up for? I didn't ask to be born. Why are you acting like this? On and on and on, all the stuff that they give. And you're about to blow. Of course, you immediately think about holding him in your arms in the hospital, right? No, you don't. (laughs) But see, you should. That's what the gospel's saying. The gospel saying is that we all have transfigured moments, moments where we experience truth. You see, that daddy looking at his little girl or little boy is seeing more clearly than he will ever see that child again. The truth is in that moment. It's not in the moment at the door, which is covered and colored by all sorts of things that are hard to deal with. The mom or the the wife who looks at her husband 
on the day of her wedding and sees as she comes down the aisle, this man, her eyes, a strong, big hulk of a man with his eyes filled with tears as he looks at his bride for the first time. He's seeing her clearly. That's not fake. That's real. She's looking at him in a way that she will see him as clear that day. Her love will give her vision that day clearer than any other time. And so when they're in the fight, that transfigured moment is supposed to come up in their head when their relationship is dry and there's trouble to remember what did I see and to work from that. Abraham remembered his transfiguration moment of God's promise and God's coming through and he knew he wouldn't go back on it. So if I'm in my class and I'm feeling all alone because I treat my sexuality as though it were a gift and a sacred and a holy thing and not a playground, and I feel left out of the whole group of guys who seem to use it for anything they want or girls, you're supposed to stop and say, but there's a transfiguration moment I had Sunday when I looked at Jesus Christ in bread and wine And I knew that he was there. And I received him. And the body that received him is certainly not going to exploit itself for my thrill. You see, the transfiguration moments in our life, whatever age we are, are the moments that tell us to get through the times where there don't seem to be many transfiguration moments. You know, our... Uh, my friends, the Burkmeyers and I have a, as we many of us do, have a very dear friend in Danny Langford. who was down at the Heartland Hospital, now a central hospital. And he's been there since he was a catechumen. How many years ago? Seven? Seven years ago, a member of our catechumen, we initiated him in that same nursing home. And all these times, they have hung with him. I've been able to see him. Other people have stopped in to see him. He's been a member of our parish community that no one here has seen. But he died this morning. He died this morning. And all I can think of is, throughout his life, his transfiguration moment was the day he was initiated. Because from that point on, he was different than he was the weeks before. He became ours. He became our family. We visited him. And what's more, he knew it. And he expected it and asked for it and looked for it. It got him through some horrible disabilities. And it gets us through death itself. To remember that he was claimed by Jesus Christ as one of his own. So even now as we lose him to the Lord's grasp, we know that that grasp will hold tight to him regardless. So here's the quirk. Today, do yourself a Lenten favor. Go home and think of those transfigurating moments. Where have I been an experience of the transfiguration? Where have I been, like Peter, James, and John, in front of a place where I knew the Lord was? And if you can't recognize him, then look for places where you knew you were loved. Maybe you're with your friends last Friday night and had a great time and never one time thought about how you appeared or what you sounded like or what you were wearing. And so as a result, we're simply free. 
Cool. Wonderful. That love is a transfiguring moment. And hold on to those transfiguring moments for the time when you say, Lord, I don't, I don't know. You see, that's how Paul can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for me, that transfiguration moment of knowing that will see me through anything. It will hold me, even when no one else will. The gift of God's grace, the gift of God's love is here, is with us, in our relationships, in any place that prompts love especially where it prompts love over hate, prompts love over the lack of forgiveness or vengeance. Transfiguration moments see us through the passion, to the resurrection. And if in some transfiguration moment you grab hold of it while in a horrible desert, while feeling stretched, and alone and awkward and not sure of your faith. Hold it tight. How he has acted in the past is how he is acting now. Hold tight to it and just say, call me Abraham. May Jesus be praised forever. Thank you for tuning in to the St. Thomas More Lynchburg's Homily Podcast. For the daily reading and to learn more about the community of St. Thomas More, please visit our website at www.stmva.org. If you are blessed by our podcast today, please give it a like, a kind review, and share it with a friend. God bless.